Thank you to our primaries and their teachers and parents. And may those books stay in their heart and in their daily lives from this day forward. It's a privilege to be with you here this morning on this beautiful morning in Bering Springs. We especially are thankful for our young people and we're at the end of a three-part series on family. And this morning I'm presenting a message entitled, What is a Parent? Children and the Blood of Sprinkling. I've borrowed part of my title from Charles Haddon Spurgeon, 19th century preacher in England. And uh, there is a little booklet that he's presented that covers some of this subject matter. Let's pray. Lord, our lives are yours. And as we start into the Word, I pray that your Spirit would be here to prepare our hearts. May we be wax upon which the mold of the Spirit can leave a divine impress. Make us strong and healthy in our families. And may we be good stewards of the chief stewardship of our lives, which is people, especially little people. And now, Lord, we look to you to make this moment into all that it can be alone through you. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I want to remind us that there is, if we could bring the slides up, there is a, there is a experience that we are still celebrating as a people. Every quarter, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We call it the communion service. It is an ongoing representation of this Old Testament festival that we call the Passover. And that was to be perpetually celebrated. It was the salvation of the children of God and it was the salvation of the firstborn children and the firstborn of the beast, by the way. This morning, I want us to understand how important it is that we keep the cross ever before us. There was no blood put on the threshold, only across the top and on the sides. And every time a child walked through that house, they were to be reminded of the centrality of the love of God and the provision of Jesus for our salvation. Several years ago, Tom Brokaw wrote a book, The Greatest Generation. He's an elderly gentleman now. Obviously, many of us know him as a news commentator. In his book, he summarized seven significant points of the generation that came through the era of World War II. Those seven points, I think, it would be worthy for us to reflect on for a few minutes. And I'm doing this for a reason, because if indeed it was the greatest generation, then perhaps we ought to be aiming for a generation that's built on the strengths of what it was and what we can be. I was listening on talk radio not long ago, and I heard the presenter talk about the generation of heroes or the hero generation. That's where we're headed. An army of youth rightly trained does need to be rightly trained. So this morning, I'm hoping for anybody that's still actively discipling the young, but I'm talking to all, whether their children are mature, all of us coming out of family systems and to this larger church family as we collectively parent the young towards the kingdom. But what are these seven principles? The first is personal responsibility. In the Depression age, everybody carried a part. 
There was no loafing. As soon as you were old enough to do something, you were doing it. Resilience was required and resilience was acquired. When we raise our children without age-appropriate responsibility, we are robbing them of that which will make them strong in an age which will require it. The world is unraveling. So many are giving up. Mental health is a plague, especially amongst the young, but it doesn't have to be. We can teach them to be conquerors, not to be conquered. And that's our goal. Humility or modesty. You know, I can remember as a child coming up through what I would definitely call the lower end of the middle class. And I can remember driving that old tan Chevy station wagon, 1974 Chevy station wagon, big 350 V8 engine in it. And as I was sitting in the back this morning thinking, I thought to myself, you almost never ever hear a car backfire anymore. Does anybody know what a backfire is? All right. You know, it's when all the gas doesn't get burned in the pistons, in the chambers, in the cylinders, and it finds its way to the exhaust system, and there it accumulates until the point of ignition, and boom! And some backfires are so big they blow open holes in your muffler. It's kind of embarrassing. I was out walking here in the church the other day, and I, I heard a car going down the road backfiring. You just don't hear it anymore. Who drove cars that backfired? Poor people. There's something about being poor that helps you know that it's not wealth that makes you who you are. And for those of you that are a little bit better well-heeled and have a little bit money, more money, don't use it all on your kids. As a matter of fact, don't use more than you should because it's not safe to give your kids a lot of things. It is safe to give them a lot of opportunities. But make sure your kids grow up knowing that they're not the center of the world and that God himself has a claim on them, work ethic, kind of related to personal integrity. You know, it's hard these days to find people who will even show up to work. Our kids not only should not just be showing up to work, but they should be doing whatever their hand finds to do with all their heart, with all their mind, and with all their strength. Are we teaching our young people this? It should continue, of course, to be taught in the home, but it should also be taught at school. There are some parents who have thought that when the kids are running the vacuum cleaner at school, that somehow they're missing out on something. You need to stop and think again. Keeping a job takes hard work. Making a marriage work is hard work. Just about anything you do is built on the concept of your work ethic. And the lazy person is the fearful person. That's why the Bible says that the lazy person can hardly get the spoon to his mouth. And he says, there's a lion in the streets, but the righteous go out and meet the lion. That's who you want your kid to be. When we look at commitment, they made promises and they kept their promises. Sometimes at exceptionally high price. There's an element to not quitting that's important. And so what does that mean? That means for most of us, we've been in situations where we want to quit. But when it's the difference between survival and not surviving, you don't quit, which means life teaches you to stay in the game because life itself might ebb away. This is what this generation went through. And so, you know, if, if something happened in the middle of the winter on those Dakota plains or in those Indiana fields, 
You might have to go out and start the tractor when it's 20 degrees below zero, and it might not start very well. They didn't back then. It's in the age that preceded, um, well, it was in the carburetor age, not the, not the uh, delivery of fuel injection. And it was in the age of points and, and timing, not electronic ignitions. Things were hard, and making them work was hard. But commitment, integrity, when you made a promise, you kept a promise. And in all of these things, there's a common thread, and that is sacrifice. But I would hate to pass up the one that is so easily overlooked today, and that is frugality. You know, we live in an age where sometimes people say, well, it's not worth my time. We're in the throwaway age. But throwing things away and being careless with what's provided is not good for the character, let alone the pocketbook. Waste not, want not is what people were taught. And there used to be an age when you filled your plate with what was on the table and you were glad to get a second serving if it was available. But in this day and age, we throw away a lot of food. So I'm really kind of encouraging you to go back to the values that created a societal fabric, a character of a nation. If Brokaw can call it the greatest generation, then maybe it would be good for us to recognize that bringing back some of those old ways, it's not easy. It's hard to teach people to work. We're so distracted with so many opportunities, but maybe we need to have a few less opportunities and do what we would call the essentials, the rudimentaries. You know, it's important that we understand where the cornerstone is. So let's move on to the enemies of parenting. I want to move through these fairly quickly. The first is ignorance. Nobody listening to me here today needs to be ignorant. Number one, you had your parents, and you need to be humble enough to recognize all the good that they did. The second is you have the Bible, which is the ultimate parenting book from the beginning to the end, starting with Adam and Eve in the garden. There was a warning. There was love and opportunity. It was a perfect environment. But when they sinned, they did have to experience discipline. They were hastened out of the garden. They had to go through the gruesome experience of sacrificing a lamb and wearing the clothes from the skinning of the animal. Yes, right from the very beginning, all the way through Scripture, you can see embodied in this holy book the principles of how humans should relate to each other. The world has turned their back on those principles and consequently we're experiencing societal dysfunction and breakdown. And we shouldn't be surprised. What was good, we call evil. What is evil, we call good. Character is at the heart of every healthy, happy home and every healthy, functioning society. And as character dissipates, so does functionality. And that's where we are today. But it's exceptionally important that we go to the inspired sources, the Word of God, also the Spirit of Prophecy. If you have not read the book Child Guidance and you're a parent, Woe be unto you because my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge, Hosea the prophet said, on behalf of God. And it's not just you. Jesus said if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, it'd be better for you to put a millstone on your neck and jump into the sea. So there's something very sober about this journey that ignorance cannot be attached to. We have to examine our own hearts against the experience of the Word of God. And if somebody gives you some advice... Take a minute to think about it, especially if it's a parent, like that would mean grandparent of your children. 
And stop and think and pray. Pride and dishonor. They're not too far removed from ignorance. You see, dishonor and disrespect is a dynamic of our age. And it's usually focused around the generation that came before us. The Bible says, honor your father and mother. Somehow they managed to do a pretty decent job with you or with me. And yes, they made some mistakes, but they're to be honored and recognized for all the valuable contributions they brought into your life. Nobody listening to me today is a self-made man or woman. And yes, there are the outliers of abusive parents. For that, I'm not addressing in this subject matter today. I'm dealing with the main I'm not dealing with those people who ran their families through the guardrails of healthy operations. I'm dealing with people who pretty much stayed on the road. Yes, they made mistakes. And yes, they deserve to be honored. And part of how you honor them is to adopt their methods. Self-consciousness is a great worry of some. They are fearful that they are being perceived as bad parents. I want you to understand something. Parenting isn't about the parents. I want to say that again. Parenting is not about the parents. Parenting is about serving God in the stewardship of raising a child. It's important that we get over worrying about what somebody's going to think about us. Because I'm here to tell you before it's all said and done, somebody's not going to think very well of your parenting. And the last category, especially through the age of adolescence, might be your own children. Get used to it. You're doing what you're doing for the sake of the next generation until they can get to the place where they can appreciate it. In the meantime, don't worry about what people think about you. Take Jesus' advice and basically think more about what God has on his mind relative to what's happening. I'm thankful for a mother who, though, didn't raise me in an era of Christian profession for herself. She did get this part right. Love your kids. Teach them to do right. Deal with them when they do wrong. And in the end, make sure that they have the best chance to step up into a functional adult experience. Worrying. There's nothing like fear to run anybody's life in reverse. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but you know, when you're backing something up, you're a whole lot more likely to do damage. Sometimes people don't even look out their rearview mirror. And of course, today, some have screens on their car that does the looking for them. But I'll tell you, Zig Ziglar used to say, fear is faith running in reverse. You don't drive down the road in reverse looking through your rearview mirror and constantly looking over your shoulder. You drive down the road looking through the windshield. So don't be so worried about how your kids are going to turn out. Number one, they're pretty rugged. They were built with some resiliency because you receive them as novices. And number two, you need to get a message across to them. They're going to be okay now, they may not turn out the way you want. There are many a parent that's gone to their grave wondering whether or not they'll, they'll enjoy the tree of life with the rest of their family. But if you don't anchor them down in the ways of righteousness, the opportunity for them to return becomes very diminished. I have four children. Two are in the church. One wants me to think he is, and one clearly isn't. These are just the facts of life. But I'm not done parenting just yet. And you know what? My prayers are ascending daily. And when necessary, my words are being shared with my adult children. 
I used to uh, tell my children, you see this hand, it's going straight through. And every once in a while in their adult life, they'll say, you see this hand, Dad, it's going straight through. <laughs> I talk to them. I don't say more than I should. I hope sometimes what I do say, they did, don't want to hear. But I'm still their mother and their father. And I will be their father until the day they die. Until I lose brain function or body and brain function, I'm their dad. And I'm a generation in front of them, which means they're never going to catch up with me on what I know through the education of life. Purposeless parenting. These kids were given to us for a reason. I used to keep on my credenza in my old district a little brochure that said, I work for God. I work for God. I work for His church. I'm serving my family, and I'm in a battle. Psalm 127 says, children are like arrows. What does that mean? What that means is in the battle of life, I'm preparing them to hit the bullseye and the target. They're an extension of my warriorhood. I'm training them to be servants for God now and for the higher service and the higher joy in heaven to come. If my life isn't aimed at the target of working for God, neither will their life be. If your life has no definite purpose and you're just tagging on church to feel a little bit better and not totally surrender that sense of guilt-free freedom, be certain they're not going to be any more attached to it than you were. And with all the opportunities that wealth and education has afforded them, probably they'll be less. It's important that we aim at the target and we realize we are in a battle. We're wrestling not against flesh and blood. And what we're doing is exceptionally important. Hypocrisy. I want to tell you that there's nothing more inviting than a genuine Christian home. But remember, every kid has a fakeometer, and they know how to calibrate it. And they're either calibrating it saying, mm, no, or they're saying, yep, that's it right there. And I want you to understand that when you're the real deal, I mean, the most unreal thing a person can ever run into is phony Christianity. Because the expectations are high and the performance is low. But when somebody runs into a principal Christian who's pressing on the upward way, they're hand in the hand of Jesus. People are impressed. Not that they're perfect, but that they're genuine. Our kids need some convictions. And if they don't get them from you, woe to them when they're going through that phase of life when they don't have a conviction against drugs or premarital sex or drinking. They actually need those red lights to go off in their mind and remind them, danger shouldn't be here. I've been indoctrinated against this. These convictions are elemental to their lives, but if their parents wander through life without any convictions, and they're just kind of gleaning from the church, gleaning from their good-paying jobs, which came standing on the shoulders of a lot of sacrifice, it's exceptionally important that our lives are compellingly committed to the cause of Christ and that we come out and we engage and we connect. I'm appealing to everybody listening to me, whether it's online or in this audience. Bring your children to the prayer meeting. More of you are doing it. And I want to affirm the ones that are and I want to appeal to the ones that aren't. 
Let your children sit through a few moments where maybe they're not tantalized like some screen can do. But maybe they'll hear a word from Jesus that transforms their heart. And maybe they'll make a connection with somebody else in the church family. So showing up is that much more of a celebration. And maybe they'll just find out that success involves a few of those moments where everything's not exciting and tantalizing. It's super important. Be the real deal. Walk with Jesus. You don't have time to read your Bible. You don't have time to be at the prayer meeting. You don't have time to be at the evangelistic meetings. You don't have time to be at the Vespers. You're not really a generous giving person. They'll figure it all out. And why should they be any different? Why would we expect them to be any different? But put it all on the other side. I give my heart to Jesus. I talk to him every morning and every evening. I'm building a family altar at my house. I have family worship. God is first in my time. He's on my schedule. He's in my checkbook, in my ledger. He's guarding what I watch. He's focusing what I do. They'll get it. And while some of them may wander, they have something to come home to. The last thing on the list is maybe the most deceptive. I call it tribalism. What do I mean by that? What I mean is child-centered homes where we focus so much on supposedly meeting the needs of the child that we give ourselves a good excuse not to do several of the things I've talked about on this list. We don't want them to miss any sleep because that might impact negatively their academic performance. You know what? Their academic performance will pale in significance to their spiritual foundation and the discernment and wisdom they're going to need to pick a good spouse, hear God to choose a career. I'm afraid sometimes without aim and purpose and with a little bit of hypocrisy, with just a touch of dishonor in our hearts, we deviate from the example of our parents and we just kind of pick and choose like the consumers that most of the Western world is. And we take a little here and we take a little there. And the idea of sacrificing is, and sacrificing by going through the work of bringing them out, sitting through church service with them even. You know, I can tell you that Training a child to actually sit in a service and pay attention is a very delicate, prayerful, patient work and one that is not to be easily engaged in, but one that is to be encountered. And for all those mothers and fathers that have done it, praise God. But this sense of I'm taking care of my kids so I don't have time to do this and I don't have time to do that will not meet with favor in the record books of heaven. I just want you to understand the kids are to be shown as you sacrifice and serve, that this is how a Christian lives their life. Probably one of the saddest things I heard, I'm finishing up a, a degree, and one of the saddest things I heard is when they brought my leadership cohort together with the millennial cohort. Now, mind you, I'm, from, I'm the last year of the baby boomers. I was born in 1964. More than four million babies a year were born almost 60 years ago, 60 to 80 years ago. When I sat over here in Griggs Hall as they brought both of our doctoral cohorts together, I heard one of those young men in that cohort say some of the most sobering words I've ever heard. They said the statistics show. Now, mind you, I'm not against statistics. But I do value inspiration over science, so-called, at times. 
But they said what's happening now is it used to be that men and women would come back to the church. They said what the statistics show now is they are not coming back. Part of the reason they're not coming back is they don't know what to come back to. There wasn't enough structure. There wasn't the accumulation of assurance. And there wasn't the conviction about right and wrong. And so they had this moral therapeutic deism that's a, a term that's been coined. Everybody's supposed to be nice and sort of good and figure it all out and all roads lead to heaven, which they don't. That kind of religion isn't going to do it. It's not going to cut it to get our kids through the rough spots in the world that's upon us and that's coming. And it's not going to get them through the narrow gate and on the narrow way. This tribalism or child-centered parenting that makes the children the center of the home might be their worst enemy. Take your Bibles, if you would, and open them up to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 12. On the night of their deliverance, Israel was given a perpetual feast, a celebration, a sign of God's deliverance. Exodus chapter 12, beginning with verse 21. Exodus 12, verse 21. Then Moses called for the elders of Israel, and he said, Go to them. Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families, and slay the Passover lamb. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin, and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and the two doorposts, and none of you shall go outside the door of his house till morning. I want you to understand how at the end of the ninth plague and on the cusp of the tenth, Jesus shows up in a distinct way to say, I've done all I can do to reach the Egyptians. I have spoken to them with warning and invitation to repent. And I'm now coming to the last moment where they could, if they would, be saved. And a lamb was taken without blemish. And the tenth plague, the shadows of the destroying angel coming at the evening hour, the hyssop in the bowl, the blood caught in the basin and struck across the top and struck on the sides, not on the threshold, the blood of Christ not to be trampled on, but the doctrine of the cross and the doctrine of atonement. And I want, you to look into the, I want you to look into this artist's rendering and see these kids looking up at what their dad is doing. Obviously, the one on the left is older. His life will be saved. God has made us, as his remnant church, the Christians of this world, but especially at this last hour, they that keep the commandments of Jesus and have his faith. He has made us his firstborn. He has entrusted to us the responsibility of stewarding his estate. The firstborn child would receive two portions. So if there were two sons, the firstborn would get two-thirds. If there were 12 sons, the firstborn would get two-thirteenths. But that would be the son that was tasked with caring for the estate. On the night of the 10th plague, the destroying angel was going through the land. And there was going to be Death for those that refuse the invitation to live. That is God's assurance, the doctrine of the cross and the atonement. 
I want you to see there are seven aspects of this. Number one, it is a national mark and it is two, rendered conspicuously. If you walk through Memphis, if you walk through any other city in Egypt in that day, it was completely clear who was living for God and who believed. It was so central in the raising of our children, we are not to be just one little deviation away from the rest of the world. We're not to be bowing down at their idols. We're not to be watching the same things. I hope none of your kids watched what went on for 29 minutes between the second quarter and the third quarter of the world's biggest sporting event. We are not to be listening and doing as the world does. On that night, there were three splotches of blood running down the doors of the house. And when they walked into that house and they closed the door, they were to stay inside. It didn't matter what shriek they heard on the street. It didn't matter how many horses' hooves were moving up and down the alleyways. They were inside, safe in the arms of their dear Savior. And that's where Jesus wants our children we are to be distinctly different and we are to be conspicuous without being self-promoting as unique. Yes, indeed, this evening would be the changing evening, but I want you to understand it's on this evening that God liberates his people. The third thing we should see about this is that it is a saving token and number four, the people trusted in it. When they walked into that home, and that lamb was roasting with bitter herbs, representing the great cost at which salvation was coming. It was there for them that night from the mortal death of the destroying angel. But it was there in symbol for the eternal deliverance that was coming. And it would be purchased at the great price of Jesus Christ. The people trusted in it. You can't raise your kids without knowing the great provision of the God of heaven to stand by your side, that you are safe in his arms as you trust in him for your salvation and lead them to the cross. It was to be a perpetual remembrance. Can you imagine every day after the Passover ceremony passing in and out of a house that still had the blood stains on the lintel and the two doorposts? And it was to be an all-pervading memory. It was the doctrine of the cross. It was the doctrine of atonement. Verse 23, the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lentil and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land which the Lord has given you and he's promised, you shall observe this right. And when your children say to you, what does this right mean? You shall say it is a Passover of sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians, but he spared our homes and the people bowed low and worshiped. What is a parent? A parent is an extension of the heart and the hand of God. A parent is someone whose love is often unrequited and unacknowledged. Often, if it is and when it is, there is a period of waiting. A parent is one 
who with the soldier-like devotion for God maintains an affectionate word and an affectionate touch, and yet with the rigors of understanding that life has some hard moments to pass through, still disciplines, but not as an expression of their own frustration or a relief valve for their own anger. A parent is one who is true to God, understanding that God is looking to see the face of the multiple generations of the young and the old under the tree of life. Yes, a parent is consistent and faithful and teaches their children that it is self-respect, not self-esteem, that is what their parents can give them. The self-esteem will come with the actions that bring and come from obedience. This morning, friends, I want to say to you the most important thing you can teach your children is the doctrine of the atonement, to keep before them the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ, to keep before yourself so that you might take of the beautiful mixture of truth or justice and mercy in the application of your parental discipleship. And this morning, I want to assure you that every time you walk through the doors, you should say to yourself, sprinkled on the cross post and the door post is the blood of God's provision. I am safe because Jesus suffered and sacrificed for me. It's my hope and prayer that every parent listening to me here today will recommit themselves to the, the centrality of experiencing what that cross means to them, then making it their point to teach it to their children and live it out in the structure of their home. May God help us as we apply the blood to the ordinary aspects of our life, reminding our children they were bought with a price, that they can't just grow up and do what they want to do and live out their dreams, but they, are, they need to remember that those who delight themselves in the Lord, the Lord will give them the desires of their heart. Every single child has a purpose. And if ever there was a purpose for training our children properly, it's now. The age of evil is upon us. Good is bad and bad is good. And sometimes our kids are having to sort it out even inside some of our institutions of higher learning. It's an unfortunate circumstance. May God help us to lead them to the foot of the cross. May we live there ourselves. And may the blood of sprinkling, the provision of the atonement, the cross of Christ be central in our lives, in our family habits and schedules, in our checkbooks and in our choices. May God help us to lead them all the way to the kingdom. May we lift up Jesus and every heart that sees Jesus on a cross, the nobility of that person will be drawn out and drawn to. Because if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Parents, lift up Jesus. Church, lift up Jesus. Teachers, lift up Jesus. And let's show them how to raise functional families and have happy lives. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.
Forgive us when the cross has slipped away from its practical convicting power to compel us and convict us onto the road of sacrifice with you. Remind us, Lord, of what a great love exists in your heart and was exhibited on Golgotha 2,000 years ago. I pray, Lord, that we would bring it into our homes with mutual service between husbands and wives and children that are taught to serve and honor and respect their parents. May respect be the culture and climate of the home. I'm praying, Lord, the prayer of Isaiah 49, 25, Lord, contend with those who contend with us and save our children. I'm praying, Lord, forgive us when we've allowed them to do things that are actually leading them off the narrow path. I'm praying, Lord, the prayer, the admonition of Malachi chapter 4, Lord, that you turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children before you come and judge the land. And I'm praying, Lord, may we press together 
May the parents of the young especially know what needs to be cut out of their lives. May they be wise and gracious in how they do it, knowing that an appetite has been formed for it. And I'm praying, Lord, may the moms and dads be together in their union with each other and their union with you. Now bless us, Lord, as a church. Help us as a school. Guide us in our homes. And may the parents not quit parenting until either they can't think straight or they take their last breath. May they have wisdom to know how to do it at all phases. But I pray, Lord, may the children remember they are to honor their father and their mothers. And may we honor those that have come before us as our spiritual fathers and mothers too, I pray, by coming back to the basics and honoring inspiration in our methods. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please be seated.